Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkin Kazarin. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Fairness Doctrine and its future. Our listeners would be excited to know that Republicans have been going after social media platforms saying that they're stifling conservative content. Some, such as Senator Ted Cruz, have called for Fairness Doctrine for the Internet. Cruz reasoned that in order to be protected by Section 230, companies like Facebook should be neutral public forums. We are also joined by our new general counsel, Jim Dunstan, the space meme um, inhibitor who is now inhibiting tech freedom. Jim, we're really happy to have you on board. It's great to be here, Ash, and great to be in this new role here. In this new space? In this new space, yes. Um, And also joining us, the one and only dear leader of tech freedom, Brian Zoka. White male number two. White male number one in my heart. Oh, I have Jim and Baron joining me to discuss what exactly is fairness doctrine, how did it work in the broadcasting world, and is it a good idea to apply it to the internet? Gentlemen, thank you for joining the show. Great, thanks. All right, so let's start. What is what is fairness doctrine, Baron? What's its history? Uh, well, I thought that Jim was going to take that as our resident uh, expert, but I'll, I'll give you a really quick intro. Um, so fairness doctrine basically was the idea that you'd have uh primarily a right of reply on broadcasting. In the internet space, we're talking about something that's a little little different. It's about political neutrality. It's In fact, I think it's much, much broader than the Fairness Doctrine. So when Jim gives you this overview of the Fairness Doctrine, just remember that that was problematic in the broadcasting context. The idea of the Fairness Doctrine for the internet would actually be far more expansive and vague and difficult to apply. Right to reply, do you mean, so if I say, make a statement, say something about someone or a policy, whoever is in charge of it has a right to address it? Is yeah, that what so a right the, to reply is? The Fairness Doctrine had two parts, and, and I'll let Jim uh, jump in on the, on the history of it. But basically, the first was that you had to adequately cover issues of public importance. And the second was at the same time, you were supposed to ensure that the various positions taken by responsible groups, that was the term of art were aired. Now, in practice, uh, the second part of the Fairness Doctrine ended up um, being uh, not just in tension with the first, but trumping the first. In other words, um, it became so difficult to to decide who were the responsible groups, who were you going to invite to, to reply on a particular issue, that issues of public importance did not, in fact, get covered, did not get covered thoroughly. And to the extent that they were covered, actually were ironically were covered in a very bland, orthodox uh, way. And that um, people who actually did have heterodox views ended up getting uh, suppressed, which is the very opposite of what the Fairness Doctrine was supposed to do. Jim, so enlighten us. Give us a deep dive. So a deep dive. The Fairness Doctrine actually was in the, the Federal Radio Act of 1927. Um, and then the FCC was created in the Communications Act of 1934. Um, it was codified by the FCC in 1949, um, as Barron said, to to both require broadcasters to cover issues of public importance, but also to make sure that they were it supposedly covered on both sides of uh, of an issue. So 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 eventually, the Fairness Doctrine was challenged uh, in court, and in 1969, uh, the case went up to the Supreme Court in Red Lion Broadcasting versus FCC. Uh, And the Supreme Court there said that because of the scarcity of spectrum, the fact that there were so few broadcast voices on the air, um, that the commission was in it within its rights to require that broadcasters, um, again, both 
adequately cover issues and then um, provide opportunities for opposing viewpoints. Um, it was a narrow decision in, in constitutional law. In fact, the Supreme Court in Red Lion suggested that there could be a, a point in the future in which the scarcity rationale for the fairness doctrine might go away because of the advent of, of additional voices and additional opportunities for people to, you know, to have a say on the airwaves. Um, so that's where things stood. Um, and, and the whole reason I suggested we do this podcast with Barron is as we were preparing the testimony for, for Barron before the House Judiciary Committee a couple of weeks ago, it was just I was dumbfounded by the apparent lack of knowledge um, on, the, on the Hill in terms of where the fairness doctrine came from, but more importantly, how it went away and why it went away. And, and so that's why I suggested we, we dub this one fairness doctrine, the next generation, mainly because I was involved in the, in, in the repeal of the first fairness doctrine. And it's worth a sort of telling that tale, um, as, you know, advisory to what could happen if somebody decides that, the fairness doctrine would be a good concept to to export onto the internet. So I just want to note here when we talk about Red Lion and the scarcity rationale. So that that was a that the airwaves were limited and they were a public resource and there were only so many broadcasters. And B as a practical matter, uh, in 1969, you, you had very very few voices on the radio. You had big big radio networks, and um, not much more than that. So it's just, it's difficult for people today in the world of the internet where you have thousands, tens of thousands of potential outlets out there to really appreciate the, 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 the radical difference uh, uh, between that and the world of 1969. So that, that rationale is completely gone. And, and also it's worth emphasizing that, and, and this is another point that members of Congress don't seem to understand, that the Fairness Doctrine was upheld only because the Supreme Court effectively said, we're not going to give broadcast media full First Amendment protection. That was radically different from what the Supreme Court said, for instance, just uh, five years later in uh, Miami Herald, uh, uh, the Miami Herald decision, where the court said, we're, we're not going to allow a right of reply for newspapers. That would have been the, the same thing as the Fairness Doctrine. They said, no, Newspapers, no matter how few of them there are in a particular market, even if there's only one, are not subject to any kind of regulation like that because they're fully protected by the First Amendment. So broadcasting, in other words, is unique and you can't extrapolate from what has been upheld for broadcasting to any other media, whether that's print media or the Internet. And it's sort of ironic because we're sort of the flip of, of where we were in, in 1969, 1972 in terms of you want it scarcity. Newspapers are pretty scarce these days, uh, certainly compared to, to media. Well, and they outlets. were relatively scarce then. I just It's really worth emphasizing that the, the point was not, and, and this becomes relevant when we start talking about Facebook and Google, because one might say today, well, you know, there's only one Facebook and one Google and that's it. The, the point of these decisions was that in the context of newspapers, you know, there might have been only, only one big newspaper in Miami, but there were lots of other media and anyone could start a newspaper and the the answer to concerns about bias was the competition and the potential for competition. Whereas in broadcasting, there was a literal technological limit at the time to how many stations you could pack into that broadcast spectrum. And it was the government that assigned licenses 
to use that spectrum. So anyone who today says, yeah, well, we're back to having big three networks, just like we had for TV and and radio, that, that analogy doesn't fly. The Supreme Court already said no to that in the Miami Herald decision. But one might argue that to start a newspaper, you need resources. Yeah. And, and yet, despite that fact, the Supreme Court said that Miami Herald and other newspapers could not be required to give a right of reply because it was their, it was their newspaper and they had a right to run it as they saw fit. Period. End of story. Let the marketplace of ideas work itself out. So how about the attempts to codify the Fairness Doctrine in 1987? What was going on there? Well, I, I want to go back before that. Oh, okay. I want to go back to 1982 in the, in the Syracuse Peace Council case, um, because that's where I sort of entered the picture here. So back in the summer of 1982, television station WTVH in Syracuse, which is owned by the Meredith Corporation, uh, which was a client of my firm at the time, uh, they broadcast three advertisements sponsored by the Energy Association of New York surrounding the construction of a new nuclear plant, Nine Mile Two, uh, at, which had the tagline, the advertisements did, uh, a sound investment for New York's future. Well, Syracuse Peace Council, uh, an activist group in Syracuse, came to the station and said, we think that's a controversial issue. Uh, we want a right of reply. And the station said, well, no, because... The nuclear plant has already been approved by the New York uh, Public Services Commission. Uh, you know, it's all water under the bridge, and we're we're airing these you know, commercials. So, Syracuse Peace Council then filed a complaint with the with the, the FCC, saying Meredith and WTVH has, has violated the fairness doctrine. Um, and the client replied and said, "No, we don't think this was a, a controversial issue. We think we treated everybody fairly." Um, and you know leave us alone. Well, in December 1984, the FCC issued an order and said, no, we think that that was a controversial issue at the time um, and that you should have granted the right of, uh, you know, the, the right of response. Um, Meredith then took up an appeal on that and still arguing the facts of the case. Um, and lo and behold, literally at the 11th hour, finally, the head of broadcasting at Meredith, uh, a guy by the name of Bill McReynolds, um, who should go down in history as one of the great heroes, finally said, finally got mad enough. He said, you know what? I want to take this thing on, on a constitutional uh, basis. And so we filed a supplement to an app, uh, a supplement to a reply to an application for review, literally the very last thing that you could ever file and said, and oh, by the way, FCC, this whole thing is unconstitutional. Um, and the FCC sort of went, uh, no. So they issued the order and they said, well, technically you violated the fairness doctrine, um, but we're not going to fine you. And we're just going to say, you know, you know, sort of a tap on the wrist. Well, that wasn't enough for Meredith. At this point, that the, they were really mad that they've been dragged for years through this, the FCC, and they took an appeal you know, uh, up to the Court of Appeals. Um, and oh, by the way, I, you know, Wait, I was- it wasn't enough for them because the way it was dismissed wasn't satisfying enough? They got what they wanted. Well, they got what they wanted in terms of they didn't get a fine. But technically speaking, it was a, you know, it was, as they would say in Animal House, it's on your, your, your on your permanent record. You know, they were on double secret probation at that point. And, and practically what it meant is that at their next license renewal, which was coming up in a couple of years, somebody could file a you know, petition to deny the license renewal. 
and say, these guys aren't fit to be a, a broadcast licensee because they they violated the fairness doctrine. See, the FCC said so. Well, Jim, I'm curious here, how much of their decision making was because, God damn it, they wanted to have their First Amendment rights vindicated and they were tired of living under the, the, the specter of everyone scrutinizing everything they did. I, that's what was exactly it. it. It really got to the point where they said, we're, we're sick and tired of this and, and we should take this up. Now, it's interesting to note that Bill McReynolds, he was on the NAB, National Association of Broadcasters, TV board, and NAB begged him not to take that appeal. Because they said it's a nuclear case. No, we want the we want the fairness doctrine gone, but you can't win on a nuclear case. And Bill said, "Screw it! You know, you know it was our rights that were violated here." And so they t- they took it up um, on uh, on appeal. Uh, Floyd Abrams, the very famous you know, First Amendment um, lawyer, was brought in uh, um, to argue it. Um, and it's funny stories about hierarchies and law firms. Um, but it, it, essentially, even though I wrote the constitutional argument, um, I never was on the phone with Floyd at, the, you know, at that point because Floyd only talked to the senior partners and you know things Not like that. Not that he's bitter about it or anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Floyd, if you're listening, what I'm personally tagging Floyd Abrams on Twitter for this. I've met him. He's done a few lectures at my law school. So if he, if Floyd remembers me, Please know that Jim is very bitter about this, and please get on the phone with. Him. I am not bitter, and Floyd, and Floyd did an incredible job. So, so the Court of Appeals then said, um, first, even though it was so late in the day, they said we have to take up the constitutional issue. And interestingly, one of the arguments we made, um, and it only could have come from an ex-marine who was one of the partners on the case, um, we actually argued that. The FCC had to take up the constitutional issue because of their oath of office, that their oath of office required them to uphold the Constitution, and therefore they couldn't duck the constitutional argument. Um, and uh, uh, um, so it was a really interesting argument. And the Court of Appeals seized on that and said, even though the argument was made so late in the game, we're remanding it down to the FCC uh, because they have, have to abide by their co- their oath of office and have to take up this constitutional issue. I, I, I just have to jump in here and just just emphasize for the listener that what this is really astonishing. What we're really talking about is it had been at that point almost half a century where the FC or in fact a little more than that, where the FCC had been enforcing what would ultimately be found to be uh, an un, at least uh, by the Congress, an unconstitutional uh, concept. And no one had challenged it. And industry was skittish about challenging it. And it took this one guy who had a bee in his bonnet to stand up for himself. So when we when we talk about First Amendment concerns here, I, I think there's a there's a certain tendency on the Hill for people to say, well, you know, we'll just pass it. If it's unconstitutional, the courts will clean it up. How long could this possibly be a problem? Well, it could be a really long freaking time. Right, right, exactly. So the case is remanded back down to the FCC. Meanwhile, the FCC realizes it has to take this issue up. And so it opened a docket and got public comment on it. And in issued in 1985, um, a, an order in which it says, you know, we think this probably is unconstitutional, but it would be better if either Congress or the courts were, were to resolve this issue rather than us taking it out. So they, they, they were, again, trying to dodge it. And they also said in that order, uh, and in the meantime, we are going to continue to enforce the Fairness Doctrine. So we're right back down at the commission. Um, and then 
So we we pressed it again at the at the commission, and the commission finally came out in in nineteen eighty six and said, "All right, we realize because we argued not only was the fairness doctrine unconstitutional on its face, but we also argued that it was unconstitutional as applied to Meredith because of the fact that um, how could we possibly know what is and is not a a, a controversial issue? Uh, and in fact, in in one of the dissents." Uh, issue the FCC, one of the commissioners pointed that out. It's like, you're only going to know this in the rearview mirror. And in fact, people can create a controversial issue after the fact by filing a fairness doctrine complaint. And, and you could lose your license. Right. Like, this is the critical thing that's lurking behind all of this. So imagine the, the legal term for this is the interorum effect of living in fear that the government is going to shut your business down, take away your ability to speak because you didn't predict how some uh, complainant would would decide that you hadn't given them a right to reply on a controversial issue. So finally, the, the FCC gets its act together and says, you know, you're right. Um, this is unconstitutional as applied to, to WTVH and Meredith Corporation. Um, and in fact, we're getting rid of the fairness doctrine. So the next thing that happened, back to your original question, Ash, so Congress decides, well, we really think the Fairness Doctrine is a good thing. And so they passed a law. Which, Was the Congress controlled by Democrats or Republicans at that point? So the, the Congress had flipped back in the 86 election. So it was at that point a majority of Democrats in, uh, in both chambers. With a Republican president. With a Republican president, Reagan, who then promptly vetoed. Um, the bill, and they didn't have the votes to override the veto. And so that was the end of the Fairness Doctrine, although technically parts of it remained in the FCC's rules, just unenforced until fairly recently when the FCC finally got rid of things like the Zappel Doctrine and and, and stuff like that. So it, it eventually went away. And of course, what happened after that is... I mean, frankly, I think Rush Limbaugh ought to be sending me a check every month because, you know, without our work and getting rid of the Fairness Doctrine, you know, conservative talk radio couldn't exist because you would have to have an hour of Rush Limbaugh and then an hour of pick your favorite, you know, liberal per person. And But wouldn't it also work the other way? A liberal radio yeah. shows wouldn't exist because they That's would right. have to have. OK, exactly. But, but just just note here that it's not an accident that the Rush Limbaugh show started the very next year. Yes. And and indeed that conservatives had been uh, objecting to the fairness doctrine since the 1950s because, and this, this is maybe the way to think about your question, Ash, and it sets us up for talking about the politics of the internet fairness doctrine today. Republicans understood full well that the uh, big three networks in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, they towed to a pretty bland orthodoxy of mainstream opinion. And if you were very outside of that opinion, you wouldn't qualify as a responsible group necessarily that would qualify for for getting a right of reply under the fairness doctrine. And even if you did, that that isn't really good enough, right? You, what you wanted was an alternative framework. And so of yes, that applied across the political spectrum. But it was it was conservatives that tended to be much more outspoken in their objection. To the fairness doctrine, and it was President Reagan who ultimately, uh, as Jim noted, vetoed the the bill that would have restored the fairness doctrine. And I just want to take a moment just to note his comment about this because I think this is really powerful. So 
President Reagan in that in that veto statement, we'll link to this in the show notes, he summarized the FCC's findings, where the FCC, as I said at the outset, said, look, we studied this, and what we found in our report is that the the second part of the fairness doctrine, the the uh, right of reply on controversial issues, effectively um, made it impossible to provide a robust discourse of 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 public uh, uh, discussion. And so what he said in, in, instead was, uh, uh, Reagan said, uh, history has shown that the dangers of an overly timid or biased press cannot be averted through bureaucratic regulation, but only through the freedom and competition that the First Amendment sought to guarantee. And added that this type of content-based regulation by the federal government is, in my judgment, antagonistic to the freedom of expression guaranteed by the First Amendment in any other medium besides broadcasting, such federal policing of editorial judgment by journalists would be unthinkable. And that's where we stood. Fairness doctrine was dead. Um, conservatives still railed against it because it was technically still on the books until 2011 when the Obama-era FCC finally took it off. But if you look at the Republican platforms um, from 1996 on, they all go after the fairness doctrine. It became very much an ideological issue. And Republicans wanted to get the government out of media. That is where we stood until very recently. And enter 2018, you said um, fairness doctrine was dead. But no, long live the fairness doctrine, because um, what's interesting is the conservatives are trying to bring it back. So within the Facebook hearings in the Senate and in the House, uh, a lot of members of Congress have been questioning Facebook and uh, suggesting that Facebook and other platforms have been censoring conservative speech and suppressing it online. Um, and the, there's no or very weird um, combinations of evidence for that, those claims that we're not going to get into. However, their way of solving this problem that we're not even sure if that's a problem is bringing back the fairness doctrine and applying it to the internet. So do you guys mind elaborating on how this is going to be happening? So coming from my perspective, you know, now that you know sort of my role at the beginning, I was absolutely gobsmacked when I watched that, you know, the hearing where Barron testified before the House Judiciary Committee, because literally you could just flip flop the parties in terms of their position on it. I mean, the the, the Republicans were all talking about this neutral platform concept and, and the fairness doctrine. And the Democrats, in, in some very good and pointed questions to Barron, essentially unveiled the fact that it's just facially unconstitutional. It could it wouldn't stand up 10 minutes in court. But to see the juxtaposition of the two parties was just absolutely fascinating to me. So right now would be a good uh, spot to take a little sidetrack and say that, yes, just two weeks ago, Barron testified with Diamond and Silk in front of a full house judiciary committee. Baron, do you want to give us a recap and talk about the comments yeah, and the questions well, it, you got? It, I think the legal term is shit show. Um, it, it was, uh, it was like the Maury Povich show, um, but a lot angrier. I've never seen anyone, um, engage with members of Congress in that fashion. Uh, and if you want, you can watch the hearing, but that wasn't even the most outrageous thing. That was a distraction. That's a, it literally was a sideshow. The outrageous thing is what Jim mentioned that you had, um, Republicans and, and also some Democrats. It wasn't a perfect reversal of of party positions. You had a lot of members of the committees, mostly Republicans, who were saying, well, gosh darn it, Diamond and Silk had their their First Amendment, their free speech rights violated 
we got to do something about that. And the only voice of clarity was Ted Lieu, the very, very thoughtful uh, Democratic congressman who came in and, and in a colloquy with me uh, pointed out that um, you don't have a free speech right to use Facebook or to post anything online. That's that's just not how the First Amendment works. And to call that censorship misunderstands what censorship is and doesn't do it justice. It, it's it's moderation of content. It it might have a political bias. It might not. We could talk about that. But I don't think that's something that the government really has any role in. And when the government starts talking about that and starts getting involved, you, you end up uh, influencing what private platforms do. And, and the actual legal term for this is jawboning, which is where a federal official or a body of Congress pressures private parties to do things that they don't actually have the power to do. And so I'll give you an example to set the stage here for talking about what happened at that hearing. So uh, several years ago, there was a big kerfuffle about the trending topics feature on Facebook. We did an episode of the show about that. And the allegation was that uh, Facebook was discriminating against conservatives and that topics that conservatives were talking about didn't get listed in the trending topics alongside things like Black Lives Matter. So Facebook uh, looked at how they were doing this, and it turns out that they were using a mix of algorithms that identified some hot topics and then some human curation to decide what actually got featured. And Facebook said, uh, okay, well, in response to your concerns, Senator Thune, who is the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee, had sent Facebook a letter expressing concern about this. Facebook said, okay, fine, we're we're going to just drop the human curation element because uh, we recognize that our employees are, uh, they're people who live in San Francisco and Obviously, the, that that pool obviously has a, a bias. So their way of dealing with that was just to say, we're just going to let human beings uh, take take them out of the mix. We're going to let algorithms make decisions about about what goes in trending topics. Well, guess what happened? That decision, more than maybe any other single decision that was made by a, a social media company, opened the door for uh, the Russian disinformation campaign to take advantage of how Facebook worked to get topics trending that a human would have looked at and said, this is this doesn't seem right. This looks like it's it's bots or fake, fake activity. We're going to, even though the algorithm suggests this, we're not going to list this in trending topics. So that's an example to set the stage here for what kind of moderation we're talking about and, and how the government getting involved at all may end up making it hard or impossible for a site like Facebook to counter what is just bad content. It's it's people who are trying to manipulate the system through very sophisticated viral marketing tactics to influence what Americans think, and in particular, the outcome of an election. So what is next? What should we be looking out for? What are the questions that we have to ask ourselves right now, not to be in a situation where a we are passing laws that are absolutely unconstitutional and bad for free speech, B, maybe not being able to pass laws, but pressuring private entities into adopting policies that are bad for just free speech online in general. So there are a few different ideas that are rattling around here. So uh, the first one, it, now remember, no member of that hearing said they wanted a fairness doctrine, right? I was simply making that analogy. And as I said, it is just an analogy because it, the fairness doctrine in many ways was actually much more limited than what um, these Republicans are suggesting. 
Fairness doctrine, as we've discussed, was just about having a, a right of response on a controversial issue. What Republicans are saying now is that they want these platforms to be, quote, neutral public fora. Now, let's set aside just for a moment what that actually means in practice. But effectively, what they, they say they want is they don't want any bias among uh, in, in the way that the social media platforms work and the decisions that are made to take down content or to feature content. So what mechanisms are they looking at? Well, number one, this all started at the Facebook hearing with uh, Zuckerberg, with Senator Cruz saying uh, that uh, Section 230, a topic that's near and dear to our hearts, it's really the number one thing that we've been working on over the last year in the context of the amendments to Section 230 that were made to make it easier to combat sex trafficking, the SESTA-FOSTA bill. Uh, We've always said that Section 230 is the law that made the internet possible. It was passed in response to court decisions in the mid-90s that would have held uh, websites responsible in the same way that newspapers are responsible for user content. Well, of course, you can't possibly moderate all of the content that comes up on your site the way that you can moderate letters to the editor. And so if you were to hold the websites responsible, you would get what you have in Canada now, which is that websites would do as little as possible and would say, uh, they try to say, well, we had no knowledge at all, so you couldn't hold us responsible, or they would simply be held responsible, period. But in either case, you wouldn't get good Samaritan moderation of things like uh, fake content, uh, disinformation campaigns, or any other kinds of speech that the websites find objectionable, like terrorist beheadings or hate speech or whatever that might be. And so Section 230 says you have immunity broadly for removing that content so long as you do so in good faith. Now, the the argument that Senator Cruz made was uh, Section 230 was intended only to protect neutral public fora, and Congress wanted these to be vibrant fora for discussion, and they must have intended... So what exactly is a neutral public fora? Well, that that's um, that concept is not really a thing. It, 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 I, it's sort of like pornography. I think you're going to know it when you see it type of thing, and it, it's, it's always going to be in the beholder's eye. <laughs> right. And they haven't defined what they mean. The, the closest analogy really seems to be something that, again, is far more draconian than the Fairness Doctrine was, which is there have been very limited circumstances where the courts have recognized that, for example, a corporate-owned town, which operates like a government, that the streets on that in that town are effectively public fora, and that when the when the corporation that owns that town restricts the right to march or, or hand out uh, flyers, that that's, that is effectively a state action. There are some other circumstances, again, very limited, where that concept has been applied to certain shopping malls. That's it. They're very limited. I talk about them in my testimony. And uh, no one has yet to actually flesh out what this idea means, but that seems to be what they're talking about. They seem to be saying, and they certainly say a lot of things that are related to this idea that Facebook is is like that. It's like the the public forum today for all speech, and therefore that there is actually state action in some way, and that you have to be able to speak on those platforms to have a, a full First Amendment right. So anyway, the first idea is Section 230 was intended to work this way, and if you want to have immunity from being sued for uh, content that's put up by users, that you have to be neutral. There's no case law that says that. There's a lot that says the opposite. And in fact, the whole point of creating 230 was that websites wouldn't be in the situation that Jim's client was, where remember the Meredith Corporation 
lived with the government breathing down its neck and in fear that their license would be taken away or that they would be sued, right? And, sec- and I want our listeners to, when Barron says government breathing down your neck, imagine Donald Trump breathing down your neck. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, imagine his breath. <laughs> so, so the whole point of Section 230 is that we're not going to have, as Congressman Cox said at the time in the debates about this, we're not going to have a federal computer commission. We're not going to have the federal government licensing people to use the internet. And nor are we going to have vague, uncertain liability for what users do on your platform. In other words, we're not going to deputize the platform operators to be arms of the government. Now, but at the same time, we do want them to remove objectionable speech because, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's bad for children, it's bad for democracy, it's things that should be taken down. And it's going to be up to each platform operator to make that decision. So to argue that you should have that broad discretion and you should be, in, we want to encourage you to, to, to make those removal decisions, but you have to be content neutral politically is insane. There's just no way to apply that in a, in a practical way. Now that's very different from saying that, and, and we would say this, the Santa Clara principles that just came out, I think are very noble as an aspirational goal. Of course, I wouldn't want websites, websites that I use making decisions on a, on a purely partisan basis. But I don't want that instantiated in a law because that becomes very difficult to apply very quickly. It's very hard to tell the difference between uh, something that is, for example, if someone's talking about Pizzagate and is spreading uh, bullshit rumors about how Hillary Clinton personally shot Seth Rich in a parking lot in the middle of the night, you know what? I want to use a platform that takes down that kind of content because it's bullshit. Now, that's going to hurt right now Republicans more than it hurts Democrats. And that seems to be what's motivating a lot of the Republican proposal here. So anyway, just to, to finish this up, idea number one, 230 was intended this way. Idea number two is that 230 should be amended to require political neutrality. Apparently, there's a bill coming. Senator Lindsey Graham has talked about introducing something or having some kind of commission to study this issue. And then Bill, and then idea number three, as you've noted, is simply that the, the government, the relevant congressional committees are simply going to pressure the companies to change their behavior, just as Senator Thune pressured Facebook to change how it handled trending topics. And I think that's deeply problematic. And I'll just, we'll just wrap up here by just giving you one quote, which was that Daryl Issa took over the uh, chairmaning, chairmaning, chairmanship of that hearing towards the end. And he came in, he hadn't heard anything I had to say. And he came in and he started talking about the free speech rights of Diamond and Silk and how Facebook had to respect them. And I said, well, Congressman, you know, I just, I don't think the government has any business talking about this. And he said, oh, that's ridiculous. When airplanes fail, we have oversight hearings. And I didn't have an opportunity to say, well, Congressman, you can regulate airplanes. You can't regulate speech. So you can't, you don't have any proper oversight role and you shouldn't be having this hearing because it's just not a proper subject for government. And also Facebook regulating and even limiting uh, diamond and silk speech is not an airplane crash. Can we just point that out too? Right. The, the, the other thing I, I think we need to talk about is what would the practical effect be if somehow the, the, the government was able to um, require this platform neutrality? Well, it would require companies like Facebook to presumably hire a whole bunch more people to make sure that they were in compliance with whatever these regulations were. 
And what does that lead to? Well, that leads to a further entrenchment of the incumbent. And one of the things we've always talked about tech freedom is people have to be free to innovate. You know, new entrants are always better than, than old incumbents. But the more you, you try and regulate something like this, it's only going to be the Facebooks that are going to be able to layer on the tens of thousands of moderators to make sure that they're, you know, that they're pissing off both sides of the aisle equally, which I think is the only way that you could determine neutrality is, you know, have equally as many people mad at you. Um, and that's the absolute last thing that we should ever want is to create a system where we freeze in time who, you know, who's the winner and who's the loser on the internet. So to just, just note the, the irony here that people are saying today, well, Facebook is the central square for public discussion. And therefore, we're going to impose vague liability on all websites that Facebook maybe could probably kind of manage, but nobody else could, which will keep Facebook in that central position. And nobody seems to appreciate the irony of that. Well, gentlemen, it was, I'm sure, a pleasure for our listeners for all the lawyers planning that happened. Uh, I'm sure they understand the topic better now. We're going to link to Baron's testimony and I'm going to use a photo of Baron with Diamond and Silk as the image for this podcast so you yeah, guys that, can enjoy it. It's me giving them the eye. No, it's them giving you the eye, actually. Um, Jim, thank you for joining us. We're really excited to have you on board. I'm really excited to be here. And I would note that we used both the words kerfuffle and gobsmacked in this in this podcast. Also chairmaning. Chairmaning, yes. I'm I'm editing all of those sentences out. You can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. Please leave us a review so others can find the show. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.